0: Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's word. I want you to imagine with me that you're a screenwriter and you're working on a sitcom about a group of 20 and 30-somethings who are trying to find the good life. Naturally, most of the show would probably be taken up with relationships and all the foibles that the characters would get themselves into, and you'd probably write a group of kind of unlikely friends, and you'd have all different kind of characters within that group. You'd kind of have the quirky and outlandish character. You'd have the the shy and melancholy one. You'd have the one who's just a loser. You'd have the one who's like the one everyone wants to be like. And you'd have the one that would be kind of the antagonist or the the enemy somehow. So now I want you to imagine you have to write a faithful Christian character into that friendship group. Which character would it be? And can you imagine a Christian character? Can you imagine writing a faithful Christian character that would end up being the one that everyone who watches the show wants to be like? (laughs) Thanks, Brett. I'll pay you later. (laughs) <laughs> now when I first asked that question Somebody laughed over here And I'm asking that kind of ironically Because it, it sounds like a pretty unlikely outcome Doesn't it? It's hard for us to picture And I think what we have is a, is a It's a, it's a failure of imagination when it comes to this. But we know why. So in our, I I don't need to tell you, in our social context, in our current cultural moment, when it comes to especially relationships, Christians are the ones who at best are seen as hopelessly out of date, laughably out of date, out of touch, or at worst, they're seen as enemies of progress. So it's not just that Christians are kind of not living the good life, but they're increasingly being seen as the ones holding everyone else back from the good life. And I think one of the major reasons, and again, like I said, this is a failure of imagination on our part, because one of the things that everyone knows is what Christians are against. Everybody knows when it comes to relationships and love and sex, what Christians are against. But nobody knows, not even most Christians, what exactly we're for. We have very vague ideas about what what it is we're actually for, but we've got very clear ideas on what it is we're against. And so the question we want to pursue in this series that we're starting today is, what is a better vision for relationships. What is a vision of relationships as intended by God? And so that's the title of our series. And so really, I think this is about reconfiguring our imagination and reconfiguring our desires to be in line with what God intended. And the reason is this. The only way that you can tell whether something is good or bad or whether something's being used well or being used poorly is if you know its intended purpose. Without knowing the intended purpose of a thing, you can't possibly judge the rightness or wrongness of how it's being approached. And so, you know, the classic example is a watch is a terrible hammer until you realize that its intended purpose is to tell the time. And so, once you know the purpose, then you can actually judge whether it's a good or bad watch or whether the person using it is using it well or badly. And so, something I said on Vision Sunday a couple weeks ago was that I believe this year is the year where God wants us to rediscover the goodness of his will. Where God wants us to rediscover the goodness of his will for us. That will of God that Romans 12 says, when you experience it, you find that it is good, it's pleasant, and it's perfect. But we only discover that, we only experience that when we live according to our intended purpose. And I'll tell you right now, before we even get into this series, that it's a life unlike anything we've been trained to desire, and yet, it's the very life that we most deeply want. And so, (laughs) I was nervous coming into this, this message today in this whole series. It's been extremely difficult to Get into. I, I probably haven't been as nervous with any series except for the one on prayer because it's all about how incredibly inadequate I feel before the subject matter. <laughs> and so I am not going to posture myself as a relationship guru. This is not going to be some great self help series of, of tips and TED Talks. What I very simply want to do, I want us all to sit at the feet of Jesus and ask him, Jesus, what do you have to say about relationships? What have you got to say? Because clearly, we need some input. Right? And so, where else can we turn but the one with the words of eternal life? We need to know maybe more than ever what exactly god has to say about this central area of our lives that we that we live and breathe and confront every single day and so what we're going to do and the plan may shift and turn as we as we go along here but what the current plan is i want us to stay parked in the book of matthew and just ask let's look at every passage where jesus talks about relationships how does that sound pretty simple. So the the title of the series is, As Intended, Everything Jesus Said and Didn't Say About Relationships. Because there's some things we think he said that he didn't actually say. (laughs) And so we're going to look at the book of Matthew, and we're going to look at Jesus' sources for what he says in in the Hebrew scriptures. We're going to look at how the New Testament letters actually apply some of the things that he says. But we're going to see how God intends us to live out his intentions for relationships. How he intends us to live them out in our singleness. How he, intends them to live, how he intends us to live them out in the context of marriage. And we're going to look at the dynamics of healthy kingdom relationships. And so again, this is, we're not going to really focus on, on what we're against. We're not going to so much focus on the, the aberrations or the pathologies within our relationships because you know we could spend you know, the whole year talking about that, we're more going to look at what is the picture of health that Jesus offers us. So where we're going to start today, well, I'll I'll give you a preview, is that as we get into this, what we're going to see is that Jesus offers us far more than religious rules that crush our spirits. He offers us far more also than our culture's idols of of sex and relationships that actually end up distorting our purpose. Jesus offers a vision of relationships that bring holistic human flourishing. Holistic human flourishing. And so that's my first point there, or second point actually. I really can't think of any more pressing, urgent topic than this, not just in society, but within the church. And so, I really think we have to learn how to think Christianly about this, or we're simply going to be at the mercy of what the world tells us we should desire and how the world tells us we should operate in our relationships. And so the further you go down that path, the more Romans 12 and what it says about the, the, the goodness, the pleasantness, the perfectness of God's will starts to Feel alien, it starts to feel completely distant, and God's will starts to feel unpleasant, imperfect, and maybe even bad. So, will you join me as we learn from Jesus about relationships? All right, well, this morning we're not going to start in Matthew one, we're going to start in Matthew twenty-two with one of Jesus' most famous and central teachings. Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. And just to give you the context of this passage, this is where we find Jesus. He's being challenged in what is really, it's, it's a public honor contest between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, who were the ruling, the, the kind of, the two, the two leading theological, political parties of, of the Jews, and they're publicly challenging Jesus in a contest of honor. And so first of all, the the Pharisees, they they test Jesus' politics. Then the Sadducees test his eschatology. And then the Pharisees take another shot at his his ethics. It starts to sound like like a Twitter feed. (laughs) This is what it says. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And Matt, sorry, Mark and Luke's versions add with your strength as well, which is your your resources, your ability to make changes in the world. And he says, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And I want to start here, this series is, is going to be primarily practically focused, but we need to lay a foundation first. And I believe here, we see the foundation of Jesus' whole vision for relationships. And it begins with this, the point is this, humanity is intended for relationships. So it's not only that God has intentions for our relationships, it's that he intends us for relationships relationships. Well, how so? How can Jesus say this? Well, what Jesus is being asked to do, he's asked to take the entirety of God's will. And the the rabbis had calculated that there were 613 commandments in the Torah. And Jesus is asked out of these 613, which is the single most important one? What is the single most important expression of God's intent for humanity? What is the fullness of the life God intends for human beings? And so this was a conversation that the rabbis had already been having for for quite a while. And the first part of Jesus' answer is exactly what they would have considered the right answer. This is what they would have expected to hear. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, and it's the words of what's called the Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. Shema means to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And Jesus quotes that. And that's the answer that the rabbis would have expected him to give. And and then he goes on to give a second commandment that, so far as we know, no one had ever paired these two things together. So this would have been unexpected for them to hear. He says the second greatest commandment is like the first. It begins with love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you know, a lot of times you'll hear that the Old Testament, you know, God is about law and anger and judgment and, and you know, and, and the New Testament, Jesus is all about love and, you know, loving your neighbor and, and like, this is a new thing that Jesus adds. I didn't know, I, I grew up in church. I didn't know till I was an adult that Jesus is actually quoting the Old Testament here too. He's quoting the Torah there. It's, it's Leviticus 19.18. In other words, Jesus says the whole of scripture the whole of god's will and intent for people is summed up in terms of love it's summed up in terms of relationship and so does that mean the beatles were right that all you need is love you don't need any any rules well well no not exactly it doesn't jesus doesn't get rid of obedience to the law what he does is he gives us the the overarching what you could call the overarching hermeneutic principle. It's the overarching principle with which to interpret the entirety of God's will. And he says it's through this love. And if your interpretation of God's will excludes love, then you've misinterpreted God's will. The goal of it, the intent of obedience to the commandments is to produce a love that encompasses the entirety of our personhood. Body, soul, mind, strength. Everything we are and everything we have pervaded by love. That is the point of the obedience. The goal is love. And so if you obey God, but never end up loving him, Jesus says you're, you're, you're missing the point. And there's another famous passage where Jesus spoke to the Pharisees who, who, there were 613 laws stipulated in the Torah, so they calculated. They added another couple thousand to make sure that they didn't break the 613. These guys were meticulous. And it was out of a desire for zeal and righteousness so that God would restore Israel. You know, those are all good things. But Jesus says, you know the scriptures inside and out, and you think that by searching them, You'll find God and all the while you refuse to come to me the one that they're trying to lead you to. You refuse to come to me that I might give you life. And so, if you obey God but never love him, you've missed the point. And I want you to notice that Jesus pairs these two commands together and he makes them kind of two sides of one coin and he says, God's intent for you is not just a self-centered spiritual experience. If he left the one without the second, some people would come away with that, with that interpretation. Well, I just have to love God and, you know, forget about people. Well, Jesus says, no, his intent for you is not this individualistic, self-centered spiritual experience. Me alone with Jesus, you know, on the mountaintop. You cannot fulfill God's intent for you on your own. And what I'd just like to remind us in that passage there is that the word you is literally the last thing in that sentence. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. We come last in that equation. And yes, I know we need to... You know, love ourselves and that kind of stuff. But I think scripture generally assumes that we we love ourselves pretty well. (laughs) You may not think highly of yourself, but you may think often of yourself. (laughs) And so. What Jesus is saying is that these two commands, they require each other. You can't have one without the other. 1 John tells us that it's impossible to love God who we can't see if we refuse to love our neighbors who we can see. And we can't truly love people without a love for God because our love for people is motivated out of the love of God. And so, you see... These these relational dimensions, you've got this vertical dimension, you've got a horizontal dimension, and you've got an inward dimension. And relationship is central to human flourishing. It's just that simple. And I think it makes perfect sense. Genesis 127 teaches us that we're made in the image of God. He made them in his own image, male and female, he created them in his own image, were made in the image of God that scripture describes as relationship itself. The God who is the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so what that, what that means for us in this is that because God is Trinity, relationship is ultimate reality. Ultimate reality the the foundational reality of the universe is relational. It's personal. And if God is Trinity, it couldn't be any other way. And so what that means is relationship is written into our hearts and more than that, it's written into the fabric of reality itself. And so, why do I say that? Well, I I, I think it makes perfect sense, therefore, why we put so much emphasis, why we pour so much of our lives and attention and, and, and effort into getting relationships, especially romantic relationships, because there's, there's part of us that knows this is essential, this, this is what life is all about. When we, the closest we come to touching real life, it seems, is intimate, loving connection of relationship. And so it makes sense that we put so much emphasis on it. It makes sense that all the debates about relationships and, and what's the right way and what's the wrong way and who's for and who's against, why these debates are not just kind of peripheral things that we, you know, we just have friendly debates about. You can see, when you see that relationship is, is part of the fabric of reality, you begin to understand why these debates bring up so much turmoil. They they bring up so much kind of a a seismic effect on society. It's because our humanity is not fulfilled apart from loving relationships. And that's a truth, no matter what branch of science you look into, it's a truth that we're, we're discovering more and more and more is confirmed by sciences. Every human person is designed for love and cannot flourish apart from intimate relationships. As we go into the the series more, we're going to look at what the meaning of those things is because a lot of the debate centers on those things. And I think there's some, the problem that we run into is that our culture operates on completely different assumptions than scripture. Culture operates on assumptions that completely undermine this view of reality. What do I mean? Well, I should have brought the book with me, but there's a book that I've been recommending to a lot of people recently called Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes by E. Randolph Richards and Brandon O'Brien. And it's fascinating to me as someone who grew up between different cultures, but one of the things that's interesting that they do is that they reveal some of the ways that our cultural assumptions, no matter, everyone's got a culture, but our cultural assumptions actually impact what we're able to see and interpret in the Bible. And sometimes it helps us see things more clearly, and other times it it makes us miss things that are very important. And so... What is culture? Well, culture, when I'm talking about culture, I mean culture, it's not just what you eat and what you drink and, you know, like the the language that you speak and the clothes that you wear. Culture at a deeper level is what everyone takes for granted. It's what no one talks about because everyone already knows. And so every culture has assumptions built in under the surface. Under the surface. So for foreigners that visit the U.S., a lot of times they run up against a cultural assumption that no one here really talks about because everybody knows it's just what you do, that when you go to a restaurant, you tip your server. And there's even a number that everyone just knows. And it's between this range of numbers and anything less than that means you're the scum of the earth. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, if I even talk about this, if I even mention it with my cousins who have, you know, worked as servers before, it, it gets, gets, gets them emoting. But here's the thing, if you, operating on that cultural assumption, if you go to another country, say if you go to Britain, and you go out to eat, and you notice all your friends just paying their bills and leaving, you say, well, man, these Brits are such cheapskates. How could they be so uncaring? Can they, are they even really Christians? treating people like this, right? And you would be totally misreading the situation because of a cultural assumption that you've brought into the situation, all right? So one of the big cultural assumptions that we as Westerners, which is a very broad brush, but that the authors of that book point out is that Western culture assumes reality is impersonal. Western culture assumes that reality is impersonal, all right? Now, we've been talking about relationship, and according to Jesus, relationship is the foundation of, of reality. It's, 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 it's at the core because God is relationship in the Trinity. But modern culture basically assumes that reality is impersonal. Now, this is something that we've been increasingly coming to assume ever since… You know, the dawn of of scientific era began to reveal nature, began to reveal patterns in nature that we call the laws of nature, and and so the more and more that we come to understand the patterns of nature, the more our view of reality has become what some people call disenchanted. So previously it would have been an enchanted view of the universe where ancient people and even non-Western people today would tend to look around, would experience life and see relationships everywhere. Relationships between spirits and people and seasons and stars and, and ancestors and all this stuff. And so they look at life and that's just what they see. Westerners tend to look at life, and they see physics and movement and chemistry and economics. And so, of course, those are all real and accurate descriptions. But when they become the whole story, what you're left with is an impersonal universe. You're left with a universe that just, it's, it's, a, it's a clock that if God is in the picture at all, it's a clock that he wound up and he just let it operate on its own. And so what happens is in Western culture, rules have become more important than relationships. Rules have become more fundamental than relationships. And I think my favorite example of this, some of you will need to forgive me, I'll tell you in advance. You see this in Westerners' attitudes toward, towards time. All right? So, time. We picture time as a limited resource that we have to protect and guard, and, and it's, so it's very important to us, especially in America. It's very, very important to arrive on time, to end on time, all right? And we count it as, as a matter of politeness. We get upset when people don't respect our time. When people waste our time, we get very upset. And that's, it's just part of our cultural assumption, all right? But, but if you've ever spent any time in a non-Western culture, you find that there's some very different assumptions at work, all right? So in non-Western cultures, typically, they put community over correctness. So the meeting doesn't start at 10 o'clock when the schedule says. The meeting starts when everybody gets here. And that might be 12 (laughs) o'clock. And and, because of our cultural, we're more unaware of them. You can look at that and Westerners tend to say, man, they're always late. They're wasting so much time. They're so inefficient. And non-Westerners look at Westerners and say, man, these people are bizarre. Why do they care so much about that ticking clock? I mean. And so what, what you see is different cultural assumptions at play, right? And so another thing that we can sometimes miss because of our western assumption that the, the universe is basically impersonal is that non-westerners a lot of times have no trouble at all seeing where God's working and seeing the spiritual aspect of life. And Westerners, even though we don't believe on paper that the universe is impersonal because, we, you know, God is a creator and, and God's a sustainer, and, but we still have this basic posture of, I'm going to need to see a lot of evidence before I'm sure that God's at work here. Right? And, and it impacts our level of faith. It impacts all sorts of are all sorts of areas of our walk of life. And part of the reason is that rules weigh heavier in our minds than relationships. And so, okay, I'm 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 being kind of hard on Western culture, but I'm not I'm not just trashing Western culture because there's some things that it gets right that other cultures you know find harder to understand. But but what I'm trying to get at here is clearly Jesus did not share our Western cultural assumptions. You remember when his friend was dying? And they said, Jesus, he's dying. And he says, well, I'm going to hang out here for a couple more days. He didn't see Lazarus' time as a precious commodity that he, you know, right? And, and, and <laughs> Jesus saw reality as fundamentally personal. And so he lived his life as if, and this is our next point, relationships define reality more than rules. And if you don't see that, it'll be hard to make sense of a lot of the things that Jesus says and does because a lot of times, and, and Westerners struggle with the areas of, of, you know, the Gospels where it seems like Jesus is doing something, you know, contrary to the law. You know, he's picking grain on the Sabbath. He's, he's touching lepers. He's, he's not punishing an adulterous woman. In other words, Jesus makes exceptions. And when rules are so important to us, we, we take issue with that. But in each of those cases, what you see is that Jesus is highlighting the person above the law. He's highlighting the relationship above the rule. He's not getting rid of the rule, but he's putting the things in the proper order. And so he says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The rules that God laid down in the law we're all about creating the conditions where a relationship could flourish, where a relationship would be protected, where a relationship between God and man could develop, or where relationships between man and man could flourish. But one of the things that we've done is that we often reduce God's calling on us to just about following rules. We reduce our sense of a life, you know, a good Christian life to, am I following the rules? N.T. Wright calls this moralizing our vocation. In other words, reducing what God has called us to, to just following the rights and wrongs. We assume that God's intent for us, his heart for us is to abide by a set of standards. And because we didn't abide by those standards, well, that's why Jesus went to the cross. And so, here's why, to, to, to swing it back to relationships. If I were to ask you, what's God's heart for relationships, for love, sex, relationships, what is God's heart? Most of us, the, this, the surveys would suggest that most of us would struggle to say anything beyond no sex before marriage. We, that's very clear in our minds. Whether we do it or not is a different matter. But no sex before marriage. And so if that's what we've reduced God's heart to in terms of relationships, well, then it's no wonder that when Jesus says, I've come to give you a life of abundance, that to us, it feels more like a life of encumbrance. Because we've reduced it to a set of rules. And so I think what's happened is we've been far more shaped by our culture in this area than by Christ. You know, I was convicted preparing this because I was remembering as a teenager and even younger kid growing up in church, I remember at times feeling jealousy towards my friends who seemed like they could do whatever they wanted. They could sleep with whoever, they could do whatever. You know. And sometimes I would feel like that jealousy of they get to do whatever. But I would have even worse feelings towards my Christian friends who would have sex before marriage and then repent because it would be like, God, they get to have their cake and eat it too. You know? And any... <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is so stupid, guys, all right? All right, but... You know what my recurring nightmare was? Warren's laughing because he knows what this is. My recurring nightmare as a Christian teenage church boy was, well, what if Jesus comes back before I get married? (laughs) (laughs) And I remember a friend of mine in school saying, you'll never make it till you're married. And I said, I'll show you. You know, and then when I get married, that's going to be great. I'm going to have, you know, and, and you know what was happening? So I was obedient to a degree, but here's what was happening. Even though I was doing what God said to do, I was chasing after what the world said I should desire. So even though I, I was going after what the world set up as, this is what you should want, this is your desire, this is going to fulfill you, it's just that I was trying to do it in a Christiany way. Right? Anyone who's been there knows it doesn't work very well. You don't really get either. You're really better off just going full pagan. (laughs) Someone's going to quote me on that. Don't send me an email about that. What's happening is, when you're doing that, you're using your obedience to somehow get God to give you stuff. (laughs) You're using obedience to try and get God in your debt to, to get other things. And that's not what we're made for. God is the only good thing that never comes to an end. He is the only thing that we're designed to run on, to to be satisfied with. And so the end of obedience, it's not paradise, it's not this, it's not healing and holy, it's, it's God, the point of obeying is so that we can have relationship with him. He is the end that we were made for and that we desire. And so the last point here is that the end of obedience is relationship. It's not morality that's at the center of what it means to, human, to be a human being. It's relationship. And so we can do all the right things and we can use them to avoid relationship with God. All because our hearts actually want something else. And so this is this is the foundation for Jesus' vision of relationships. He looks at that desire in our hearts that, that cries out, that expends so much time and energy and, and, and everything in our lives to get relationships. And Jesus says, that is a correct intuition. This is what you were made for. But you know what? You were made for the love of an infinite person. Because even if you get the love of the person that you set your desire on, eventually that person is going to come to an end. But God is the only good thing that never comes to an end. He's the only, you're designed for love, and not only that, you're designed for the love of an infinite person. And so this is what Jesus holds out to us as this is the point of relationships. Relationships. This is a revelation of who I am. I am Trinity. I I am relationship in myself. When you find yourself in relationship, that is how you actually reflect my image. You can't reflect it fully on your own. You can only reflect it in relationship. And so our intuition is true that relationships are the ticket to the good life. It's that most often we miss the point that God is the one that we actually desire. And so, I want to I bring this to a close and bring up an image here that inspired our, our artwork for the, for the series. This is Picasso's The Dance of Youth. And uh, you can see it reflected in our, in our series art. But this is, it's a picture of all the peoples of the world in this harmonious relationship with the Holy Spirit at the center. And... It, it's a reflection also of one of the, the oldest words that describes the existence of the Trinity, Trinity which is perichoresis, which is related to the word dance. And it's, it's, it's not an adequate picture of the Trinity, but it's a great picture of what it's like to join in the life of the Trinity as his people. This is the dance that he's calling us into. And so as we, we continue... In this series, we're going to be looking at what it, looks to, what, what it looks like to live out God's intention for our relationships in singleness, in marriage, you're either one or the other, and then looking at healthy dynamics of, of relationships that Jesus talks about in the Gospels, and I really believe that as we do that, God's going to be helping us rediscover the goodness of his intent, that my hope is that we'll all come out of this knowing not just what we're against, per se, but what we're for. That what Jesus actually offers us. Because it's, it's so infinitely better than what we set our eyes on. So, I want you to, as we close in prayer, and we can, we can end, and Makunji, you guys can end with a song if you have time. Or just like, Maybe we can send, repeat our song about, you know, the goodness of Jesus. You guys can decide. That's your job. But I <laughs> just want you to, as you come away from this this week, and even as we sing this song, just there's some of us here that God's inviting back to the, the goodness of relationship with Him. There's some of us here that have maybe been feeling crushed by religion, and Jesus says to you, Come. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, who've got heavy weights of religion on your backs, and I will give you rest. Learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So if that's you this morning, he's inviting you back to that easy yoke, that light burden. And there's some of us here who have never Experienced the goodness of what it means to know God. And just as I invited everyone to the table earlier, if you've never responded to Jesus' invitation to come, you have an opportunity to do that right now. And all we we, we do that through speaking to Him, through conversation. We call it prayer. And you can pray something like this in your, in your own home or right here, or right now. But either way, when you respond to that invitation, you're not doing it alone. You're stepping into a family of relationships. And so I'd encourage you to talk to me about it, talk to someone about it, because we're designed to do this together. So if that's you and you're, and you're sensing a, 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 a something in your heart that says, Jesus, yeah, I want to know you. I want to know what that's like I want to have relationship with you then come to him and say Jesus I'm so sorry for how I've turned away from you and gone my own way Jesus thank you that you love me I believe that you died on the cross for me so I could be forgiven I believe that you rose again from the dead so that I could have a new life Jesus, please give me your Holy Spirit. Make me one of your children right now. I commit my life to you. Amen. So let's, why don't you stand with me and we'll just close in prayer and end with with a chorus together. Jesus, we thank you for this picture that you offer us of a flourishing, abundant human life that can only be found in knowing you. Jesus, would you reawaken our imaginations this morning? That relationship with you, relationship with our brothers and sisters would weigh far heavier than, than rules and regulations. That love would be our guiding principle and that Your love would transform us into obedient children who desire to do your will, not only out of duty, but out of delight. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.